show The West Wing began. I love the pilot of that series. You see, when that series began, it wasn't supposed to be about the president. The president was going to be a very ancillary character in that show, only appearing a few episodes a season. Then they discovered Martin Sheen was a great actor. Who knew? But when it first started, the senior staff was supposed to be the centerpiece of the show. Sam Seaborn, the speechwriter, and Josh Lyman, the deputy chief of staff. And in its pilot, the West Wing was insanely brave because they began with a plot about Josh, one of the main characters, going off the rails on a TV show and whether or not he'd be fired. The show began by taking one of its main characters and putting his flaws squarely on display. How often do we watch TV shows and begin to idealize the main characters? We wish we had the relationships with our siblings that the This Is Us crew has. We wish we were as cute as Jim and Pam. We wish we had a bond like Joey and Chandler or Monica and Rachel. We see key aspects of characters we love and wish they were a part of our lives. But don't our favorite characters become more real, more human to us when we see their warts, their flaws, and their failings as well? When they stop being idealizations that aren't in any way real and become three-dimensional people? Some of my favorite TV characters become much more real to me when I see not only their best qualities, but also some of their faults. Josh Lyman was headstrong and obnoxious. I, sorry, I'm identifying with the character. Um, Lorelai Gilmore was incredibly stubborn. Coach Eric Taylor had tunnel vision. Seeing their foibles and what these foibles mean for their interaction with the world enables me to embrace my own foibles and learn how to be self-aware in the world. Simply put, when we see the faults in our favorite TV characters and respond in love and grace, we can learn to have love and grace for ourselves, for our own faults and failings. This morning, we are going to look at a main character as deeply flawed as Josh Lyman and Lorelai Gilmore and Coach Taylor, someone who does things that draw us in and someone whose lesser moments drive us mad. This morning, we're going to talk about Peter. Let's start with the good. In Peter's best moment, which could serve as a climactic moment in a season finale of a Netflix TV show, he declares before Jesus and the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In the TV version, it'd be so awesome, so epic, you'd get off your couch and cheer. And it'd be the moment when you realize that Peter is, apart from Jesus, the crucial character in this story. He is who we're rooting for. And the cheering wouldn't stop there. Because, Peter, because Jesus says, Peter, yes, things of this world haven't told you this, only God above. You've listened to him and you've heard. And because of this, you're my guy now. On you I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And Jesus goes further, saying whatever decisions you make, whatever you say is okay, is okay. Whatever you say is not okay, is not okay. And in this Netflix TV show, you'd have emotional music swirling. A tear might fall down Peter's face, and a few tears would fall down our own face. It'd be glorious. But eventually, we would see the flaws come out in Peter. And the same thing that allowed him to be bold enough to declare that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, would also be part of his downfall, because his boldness could get him into trouble. We're going to skip ahead in our story to get to our scripture passage for today. 
If his declaration of Jesus as the Messiah was the high point in his arc, this passage from John is the low point. It's from John chapter 18. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. Some context might be helpful. This is after Jesus has been arrested. Um, But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. We read this from John, but it's included in every gospel. There aren't many things that all four gospels agree on. For instance, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say the crucifixion crucifixion took place on the day after the celebration of the Passover. John has it take place on the Passover. And while John has his reasons for doing this, imagine that the four gospels don't have the same date for the crucifixion of Jesus, but they all agree that Peter denied Jesus three times. Tough look for my guy. Now we might say this moment seems unearned, as we went right from Peter declaring Jesus was the Messiah to Peter saying, I don't know the dude. But in fact, Jesus saw this coming. At the Last Supper, Jesus tells the disciples that they will all desert him, that Jesus' final hour is coming and he will be walking it alone. And Peter cries out, I'll never leave you, Lord. Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter's like, nah, bro, and Jesus is like, we'll see. So fast forward to after Jesus' arrest. Jesus is brought inside the high priest's courtyard and is awaiting trial. One disciple has an in, so he gets to go in while Peter isn't on the list. The other disciple, who has some connections, walks up to the bouncer, points to Peter, and is like, yo, he's cool too. So Peter walks in. Are you his disciple too, says the bouncer? Nope, says Peter. One down, two to go. For a second, the camera moves away from Peter to Jesus. Jesus is being questioned. And the stakes couldn't be higher. The people who arrested Jesus want him dead. Jesus has a chance here to escape with his life so long as he gives his questioners the assurance he'll go away quietly. If he says he's not the Messiah, not the King of the Jews, he'll just go back to Nazareth and live out his days making furniture. But Jesus remains faithful to the mission of God in the world lived out through him. He says, I've taught in public. You've heard what I said. Why are you asking me if I really said it? He's not recanting, which makes his questioners angry. So they hit him. 
just to remind him of who has power in the situation. But Jesus still stands firm. Peter's already lied and said he didn't know Jesus once. And now we see that nothing will make Jesus deny the truth. As Jesus is led off to go see the high priest, we move back to Peter. He's by the fire keeping warm. Someone notices he's there. Hey, aren't you one of that guy's followers? No, says Peter. That's two. Then another person sees Peter, and he recognizes him. Peter's face is seared into this man's mind. This man is seeing the face of the person who maimed his family member. It's him, he thinks, and he says it. You were in the garden. Peter panics. No, I wasn't. I swear it. Cue the rooster. Let me give a brief defense of Peter, because it's hard to imagine how charged the situation was. We have no idea what that room felt like, the hatred for Jesus that was in the air, the pressure the disciples felt to just get through the night alive. Speaking of the disciples, where were the rest of them? All four Gospels agree that Peter was there while Jesus was being questioned, and he denied Jesus. But I don't think, outside of this, other one, this one other disciple mentioned in John, I don't think a Gospel talks about any of the other disciples even being around. Why were they not there? Too scared to even watch on from a distance? Were they denying knowing Jesus too? Were they in self-preservation mode? Were they in survival mode just like Peter? But Peter's denial goes in the Gospels because it's so big. His denial is so big because of the authority Jesus had given him earlier in their journey together. We hear about Peter denying Jesus because Peter was the one Jesus said he'd build the church on. Peter was the heir apparent. And Peter is given that authority because of his boldness. Of all the disciples, Peter is the most compelling character. And he is so compelling precisely because of his boldness boldness and his potential to be flawed. His potential for greatness is what made Jesus give him authority. His potential for greatness is what makes his denial so crushing. But I think there's another reason that all four gospel writers include Peter's denial in their stories. And it's because Peter is us. Peter is someone on whom authority is placed and someone who is flawed. Someone with the potential to fail to live up to the promise. And that's precisely what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ living out in the world. You, me. We have all had authority placed upon us by Jesus. For reasons passing understanding, God has decided that the church, made up of flawed human beings, is going to be how God works out his purposes in the world, at least for the time being. God has decided that the responsibility to announce salvation unto the world the responsibility to make disciples of Jesus Christ, the responsibility to be God's mouthpieces and hands and feet is going to be given to the church, which means in part to you and to me. As followers of Jesus, we are given the same binding and loosing authority that Peter was given. What we say and believe about following Jesus in the world, and more importantly, how we follow Jesus in the world, is going to be what the world believes about following Jesus. And to the degree that Jesus placed that on Peter, it is also placed on us. I think what I find compelling about Peter is the degree to which I resonate with the position he is in. Because every day the world asks me if I'm a follower of Jesus. With every choice I make, with everything I say, the world asks if I'm a follower of Jesus. 
when I'm driving down Old Bridge Road and someone is too busy talking on their cell phone to check their blind spot and almost sideswipes me while I have my two kids in the car, I'm asked the question, do I truly believe in forgiveness? Or do I believe in lashing out in anger? And really, it depends upon the day. When someone in the median is asking for help, I'm asked the question, do you really love and serve the poor? When I see my neighbors outside, I'm asked the question, do you really believe, love your neighbor? When I'm deciding how much money to save for retirement, how much to spend, or how much to give to church or to charity, I'm asked, do you really believe in generosity? When I'm at a coffee shop or restaurant and someone sits down next to me, I'm offered the, and I'm offered the chance to have a real conversation, I'm asked the question, do you really believe make disciples? Or do you want to talk about sports or write an email? And even though I'm your pastor, which basically means I'm a professional Christian, too often I deny Jesus. But there's one more part of the story we have to talk about. Because if this was how Peter's story ended, and if Peter is a stand-in for us, it wouldn't be gospel. It wouldn't be good news for us. After Jesus is resurrected, he meets the disciples for breakfast. Let's call it brunch. Brunch sounds cooler. And Jesus looks at Peter, and you know Peter is dreading this. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Can you imagine? Sam Wells writes of this scene, it's one thing to love another person. It's another for that love to be wrapped around a commitment to learning, following, obeying, and being faithful to a vision, a way of life, a form of human community. It's another again to see the person you love killed and the life you shared destroyed. And it's yet another again to know that you denied that love and that shared life at the very moment when others were agreeing to take that life away. Here, Peter is confronted with all those things, but in a unique form, a man risen from the dead for whom it seems nothing is impossible. Let's just say this scene was charged. Jesus asks, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Jesus says again, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Jesus says again, do you love me? Peter is put out that Jesus asked him three times, but he still says yes. But I mean, of course Jesus asked three times. Why wouldn't he? Peter had denied Jesus three times. Jesus three times asked, do you love me? Jesus offers Peter a second chance for each of the times that he denied him. Jesus offers Peter a do-over. Peter is put out because he's embarrassed, he's ashamed, but we've all been there. We've battled shame. We've battled being convicted. We've battled fears over someone finding out what we're really like. But Jesus doesn't let fear, Jesus doesn't let shame have the last word. Instead, he offers Peter a chance to let love have the last word. And what does have the last word is a renewed relationship. It's worth noting here that the word Jesus uses for love is different than the word Peter uses. Jesus uses agape in his question, which is a word for selfless, self-giving, unconditional love. Peter replies using the word philia, which is the love a friend has for another. I'm going to quote a lot from Sam Wells here because he puts this more beautifully than I ever could. In other words, Jesus is saying, do you love me as a friend the way you love everyone else? Or do you love me wholly and utterly the way I love you? The pain comes in Peter's reply. As a friend, of course. The irony is that Peter doesn't realize what Jesus is asking, 
and thinks he is giving the answer Jesus wants to hear. He even thinks Jesus is being unreasonable in asking the question a third time. The extraordinary thing is that Jesus entrusts his sheep to Peter, even though Peter's love for Jesus is no more than his love for the flock. Jesus doesn't say what we might expect him to say. Well, that's not enough, I'm afraid. This passage shows us two extraordinary things about leadership. First, the leader may not necessarily be the best disciple. There's a fantasy inside and outside the church about leaders, that they are people of exceptional vision and courage, and that they take their people out of slavery or into the promised land by sheer force of personality. But here, Peter seems to have less of a relationship with Jesus than even Jesus might like, and yet Jesus still entrusts him with the church. How many church leaders feel their relationship with Jesus is less than it might be? And how many might yet find inspiration in their usefulness to God by considering Peter's own shortcomings? The second and related thing we discover about leadership is that every Christian leader is fundamentally first a follower. Time after time, Jesus says, follow me. Yet nowhere has he said this in John's gospel before now. The climax of John's gospel is Jesus saying to Peter, follow me. Even after he has been commissioned to shepherd the flock, Peter is called by Jesus to follow. Leaders have no inherent monopoly on what it means to love God, quite the contrary. And they are not exempt from needing to begin again. We will all deny Jesus. We will all refuse to love Jesus as much as Jesus loves us. And as much as Jesus would ask us to love him. We will all refuse to go as far as Jesus would have us go. The good news for us is the good news that Peter found, that God still has use for us. God will take our imperfect love, our imperfect commitments, our imperfect lives, and still bid us to follow and still invite us to lead. That is what it means to be the church. That is what it means to be a disciple. Let us pray.